This is a Federal News Network podcast. The federal government's flagship leadership development program will go through a review and some changes in the coming years. The Office of Personnel Management says it wants to make the Presidential Management Fellows Program more inclusive. That's after hearing from some current and former fellows and seeing what OPM calls an unacceptable decline in the number of diverse applicants. Federal News Network's Nicola Grisco joins me now to explain what some of these frustrations are all about and what OPM intends to do about it. And Nicole, let's start with the Presidential Management Fellows Program itself. What is OPM saying it needs to improve here? So, Tom, the Presidential Management Fellows Program, it's been around since 1977, established by former President Carter. And this is a program that is supposed to bring uh, graduate level students, those who are finishing a master's degree or a Ph.D., and bring them into government for training as well as leadership development and then ultimately Most finalists are chosen to go into a placement within a specific agency, and that's about a two-year fellowship or so. So this is really supposed to attract the best of the best and hypothetically have them stay within government. Now, OPM recently, just a couple of weeks ago, sent an email to the PMF community, which we obtained. And, you know, I think the, the first paragraph here really says it all. It says, recently, thanks in part to efforts by numerous current and former PMFs to elevate issues of concern, it has become clear to OPM that the agency has been falling short of our standards in several ways. Specifically, OPM has failed to address a significant and unacceptable decline in PMF finalists from certain demographic groups and has, at times, failed to foster a fully inclusive environment within the program. And OPM goes on to you know, describe about five ways that they envision improving over the next year or so. All right. So then the question is, who has been applying? And if they're getting diverse applicants and getting diverse finalists, but the finalists that make it through are not diverse, that seems to be a choke point. So what's been going on in that process? So, Tom, I looked at the data between 2016 and 2021, and it looks like this has been a problem for several years. It potentially predates 2016. I imagine that it would, considering the data here. But just to give you a glimpse of what the 2021 class looks like. So, you know, several thousand people applied to the program and OPM chooses about anywhere between 300 and 600 finalists a year. So for the 2021 class, 5.7% of finalists identify as Hispanic although 10.5% of the program's applicant pool identified as Hispanic. Interested Black or African-American candidates made up nearly 18% of the applicant pool, but just 2.9% of the 2021 PMF class. And then when you look at the, the population of interested white candidates, about 83.4% of the current PMF class is white, so those are finalists. But white candidates themselves made up 65.9% of the applicant pool. So there are clearly disparities between the number of people applying and how many are actually chosen to be finalists. Gender diversity is a little bit better this, this past year in 2021, but there's still some disparities there between the number of people who are applying and those who are chosen. So men made up 39.4% of the applicant pool, but 48.3% of finalists. Women made up 58.8% of this year's applicant pool and represent 49.7% of today's finalists. We're speaking with Federal News Network's Nicola Grisco. So basically then 
the finalists that make it through don't look like the applicant pool in terms of percentages of different racial groups and men and women. And therefore, what does OPM plan to do here? Because I don't think they want to go to a quota system because nobody would think that would make sense on its face. So can they increase the diversity and the fairness in other ways? I'll just quickly interject here, Tom. Not only does the class not look representative of the applicant pool, it's not representative of the federal workforce or the senior executive service or really U.S. society at large. And, you know, ultimately, actually, about 10 percent of the senior executive service comes from the presidential management program, which is something that the program likes to highlight. So let me just give you one quick example before I jump into some of the improvements that OPM wants to make. So I'll, again, go back to this statistic. 2.9% of the current PMF class is Black or African-American, compared to 18% of the overall federal workforce and 10.5% of the senior executive service. So we know there, there are challenges in getting Black and Hispanic federal employees to those higher leadership levels, but you even see it here at the senior executive service level, and especially so with the PMF program. An old so problem, just, by the way. Yes, it's been a longstanding problem. You know, I don't think OPM is suggesting that this is something that came up overnight. All right. So you said they have some improvements planned. What what are they uh, rolling out here? First and foremost, they plan to expand their relationships with minority serving institutions, and which is something you know that we hear often, I think, from federal agencies as they try to recruit and retain a more diverse workforce. But they're also looking into tapping into uh, their network of PMF alumni to try to recruit more diverse candidates. They say they're completely going to revisit their application and assessment process. That actually used to be something you had to do in person, but it's now online. They're going to look at it again. And uh, a source familiar with the PMF program has told us that OPM has asked its inspector general to actually look at the application and assessment process for the presidential management fellows. And then beyond the application and assessment, piece, they're looking at changing some of the training, doing an overhaul of the professional development training that they have, trying to bring in uh, more diverse members of the federal workforce to do that training, and bringing in a more varied degree of experts from talent management and training and, and those areas to look at the PMF program and identify shortcomings and give Uh, possible feedback as well. And by the way, once the finalists are winnowed down from the total applicant pool, the final selection of presidential management fellows is made by OPM or the White House? So ultimately, uh, just to back up, you apply to the program, OPM selects finalists who then become fellows, and then the fellows or finalists can apply to specific openings at a variety of different federal agencies and agencies themselves will make those selections. So all of the finalists then do make it into the program. Once you're a finalist, you're in. You just have to find the agency that wants you. That's correct. And OPM has said in the past that about 85 to 90 percent of finalists do, in fact, receive placements at agencies. Of course, the other big component of this, besides the placement at the agency, is the professional development training that you might receive, too. All right. And do they plan to do these changes that you've outlined next year? They're looking at making changes to the 2022 
applicant pool, which is right around the corner. I mean, I believe that OPM starts opening that up toward the end of the summer. They try to match it with when people might finish their graduate programs. And then I should also mention, Tom, that OPM is going to have a couple of listening sessions for alumni and current PMF finalists as well to participate. And just quickly, I'll mention, I did speak with the Presidential Management Alumni Association. They obviously represent past participants of this program, and they were pretty positive, actually, about what OPM had to say to the community, the changes that they outlined. And they say that, you know, look, we've kind of raised these concerns in the past, and we found that OPM has been a willing and interested partner. And they say see that here as well. Federal News Network's Nicola Grisco, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. Check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, you think about a pandemic, for example, that has uh, placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And, and the idea that we don't have the human interaction uh, which I think is very important when you think about the empathy that is a, a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented a terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions uh, on, those, on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina, uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a little school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. 
And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream, which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to, to fight for change. And that was, that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there've been so many other moments uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, 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 the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it, it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community, uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer, many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values, but the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream which we often define and think of his big I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges is seeing a forest despite the trees. It's seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute, I think, is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills. And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when 
uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor, we call it the blue carpet, Jane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government and providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, uh, and, 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 and so I think that's a lesson for me, if there was some advice and counsel I could give, is to continue to do your work, but, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. When you think about something that brings out the best in us, it usually involves helping someone else. By donating plasma at a Griffel Center, you can help save millions of lives and show your good side to the world. You'll join thousands of people who donate safely each week, so patients get the plasma-derived medicines they rely on. And you'll be rewarded up to $1,000 your first month. Learn more at grifflesplasma.com. A financial plan isn't just about money. It's about what matters most to you, like protecting your family, supporting your community, and building a legacy for future generations. At Northwestern Mutual, we start with a conversation about the life you want to live now and years from now. Whether you're paying down debt, saving for college, or planning for retirement, we have an eye on your bigger picture. Get access to our financial expertise at harlem.nm.com. The Northwestern Mutual Life Insurance Company, headquartered in Milwaukee, Wisconsin.